you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And while we're turning there, if you do need a Bible, the guys in the aisles have a copy there. If you need a copy of the scripture to follow along with us. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Philippians verse by verse. And we find ourselves in the second chapter this morning where we left off. Chapter 2, verse 5 in this morning. Uh, we're going to go down from verse 5 down through verse 11. Uh, last Sunday morning, if you remember, we celebrated communion together here. Uh, and as we celebrated communion here last Sunday morning, we kind of just took an in-depth look at chapter 2, verse 8. We kind of jumped ahead a little bit and really just focused on Jesus for uh, a shorter message and then entered back into worship and shared communion. Uh, but to pick back up where we truly left off finds us in verse 5. And we'll go down as far as verse 11 this morning. And if you're turning there to chapter 2 with me, would you stand as we do out of respect for the Word of God as we read our passage of Scripture? Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him <clears throat> and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, we ask for your help right now. Lord, ultimately for your glory's sake, everything's for your glory. And so we ask for your help as we continue to worship now that we could truly worship in spirit and truth by letting the truth of your word enter into our lives and by your Holy Spirit's ministry speaking to us the things that you want to say individually to each and every soul in this room this morning. So Lord, we ask, prepare us in whatever way that means for us, and we ask for the powerful and personal ministry of your Spirit to speak to us this morning what you have spoken in your word. Bless your word, we ask, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, strange and backward as it may seem, to God, honestly, the way up is the path down. Now, in our world, and quite honestly, logically, that sounds extremely backwards. That almost sounds impossible. But the kingdom of God really is an upside-down kingdom. So strange and backward as that statement may sound, please always understand and always remember that to God... The way up is actually the path down. Proverbs chapter 15, as well as again, it's repeated in Proverbs chapter 18, make this statement, before honor is humility. Before honor is humility, indicating that humility paves the way for exaltation from God's perspective. 
from God's standpoint, truly humility is what prepares a person to be lifted up. And this passage really illustrates that spiritual principle that God has established. And it gives us the greatest example ever displayed. And that is in the life of of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he came and demonstrated that. This passage shows us the mind of Christ and it shows us because of that the method of Christ whereby he came and lived among us as a man and that mind of Christ and method of Christ very simply was this is that humility is what God honors. Humility is what God honors and this passage as we read it Notice it reveals to us very clearly the incredible descent of the Lord Jesus Christ as he descended from the most exalted place at the throne of God in heaven and he descended from there and came all the way down literally not just to the lowest point but the lowest experience possible on this earth which then ultimately as we see and read verse 9 to 11 then culminates in him then being exalted back to the place of complete supremacy to the highest possible place forever and ever and as we go into our passage this morning let me just say i know i mentioned this before but this section of scripture is not per se really initially in its context an effort to teach doctrine Really, this section of Philippians 2 is Paul pleading for humility and unity in relationships whereby we might treat each other properly. And in so doing, what he does is he sets forth Jesus as our example to emulate and follow. And the wonderful thing is, as setting Jesus as our example, we actually get incredible doctrine, but it's almost kind of like a bonus, so I'm going to talk a lot about doctrine this morning, but understand, really, the primary focus of the things Paul was saying wasn't to, to teach theology and doctrine, though it's filled with that, and it's a bonus that we get out of it. Really, the goal of Paul was to set Jesus as an example to say, listen, here's what I'm asking you to do, to humble yourself, treat each other right, consider others. And then he says, look, have the same mind as Jesus. And can I remind you how Jesus lives, in essence, he's saying, and what he did and in a sense, we get incredible benefit of both things. Remember, the background is chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, which we looked at last time. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, Paul was making a request for unity and proper treatment of one another in our relationships. And we saw there how in verses 2 and 3 and 4, he was saying, look, fulfill my joy, be like-minded. Have the same love and the same attitude. And then, of course, verse 3 and 4, those powerful requests. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, not wrong to look out for our interests, but he says the problem is, is usually we just look out for our own interests. Look out not only for your own interests, but also, he says, make sure to take into consideration the interests of others. And now it's to support that request, those instructions and requests that he's making in verses 3 and 4, that he then sets forth Jesus as the supreme example of this as the one who let go of all of his high exalted position and humbled himself and lowered himself 
for the benefit of relationship with others in order to do what's in the best interest of others around him, including you and I. And that's why verse 5, he then transitions then saying, he's setting now Jesus as the example, therefore let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul is pleading and basically saying, listen, as I ask you to do these things, he says, I'm just asking you, try to have the same outlook that Jesus did. He's saying, I'm asking you, try and have the same mind, the same attitude that our very Lord Jesus himself had as he came and lived among us. Interesting, Jesus himself also invites us to have the same attitude that he did. And he, like Paul, invites us to learn from him and his example as well. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, learn from me. And then he says, for I am gentle and lowly. The idea is I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus says, I'm inviting you, learn from me. Come to me and learn from me how to live, he says, because I'm the supreme man. I am the perfect representation of man. And he says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And Paul, knowing, because he was a man just like every one of us in this room this morning, man, woman, we have the same sinful nature, the same struggles in our natural humanity. And Paul knows how innately selfish we are and how incredibly prideful that we all are. We're filled with the plague of pride and selfishness. It's there by nature. So Paul says here, look, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. He's saying you have to allow it. It doesn't come naturally. Now, maybe it does for you, but it does not come naturally for me. Typically, my mindset is selfishness, pridefulness, arrogance, you know, rudeness. It doesn't, but he's saying you got to let it happen. You have to be willing to allow it to take place and it happens through submission in our walk and relationship with Jesus. So he's saying, let the mindset of Jesus be instead what directs your thoughts and behavior. Now, interesting, verse five, he says this up front and really verse five is the application to the things that he talks about in verses six through 11. So he gives the application up front, but he says, look, I'm asking you to apply what I'm going to talk to you about in verses 6 to 11 ahead. The response that we should have the incredible example set in Jesus is that we would look at Jesus' example, his mindset, what his attitude and outlook was, and how he then behaved because of that, and then we seek to apply that into our lives. So I know it almost sounds a bit backwards, but in essence, what I want to do is, is let's look in verse 6 to 11 at the outlook and mindset of Jesus. What was his mindset? What was his outlook and what did he do as a response to that? And having then looked at that as our example, we'll then come back around to verse 5 at the end and seek to apply it to our lives of what we see of Jesus in verse 6 to 11. Look with me in verse 6, referring to Jesus Christ, it tells us regarding Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So here the Bible, notice first, regarding Jesus, makes a declaration of the deity of Christ, which is another way of saying that Jesus is God. Here, as in many other places in the Word of God, we have a text indicating the divinity of Jesus, that he was God, eternally existent, 
for all time, forever and ever, prior even to the time when he came to earth to live as a man. Paul says, being in the form of God. Now, don't misunderstand the, the English here, that word form. Wait a minute, what, what's that saying? The word that he uses, their form in the Greek, is a term morphe, which really indicates the essence or nature of someone that never changes. That's the term that Paul uses in the original language. The essence or nature of someone that never changes. He's in essence saying Jesus being in very unchangeable nature, Jesus being in the very unchangeable essence, God. Paul was in his own way saying that Jesus is the expression of God, which we know that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, if you have the NIV, I think here the NIV actually captures the language from the Greek a little bit better. The NIV here just says Jesus being in very nature God. I think it captures the idea a little bit more clearly that Paul is just trying to say that Jesus possessed the nature of God because he was God, yet he was God in the form of the second person of the Trinity as the Son of God. Again, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. Nowhere do we find the word Trinity showing up in the Bible, but the Trinitarian truth is indicated and expressed from Genesis to Revelation all throughout the Bible. And the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that there is one God yet existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we understand that Jesus, being the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, was fully God, eternally existent, dwelling together with God the Father, possessing total and complete equality in all his divine nature and attributes. Notice that's why he says here, verse 6, that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God the Father. Now, what does a robber do? A robber takes something that is not rightfully his. So Paul's kind of just in a backwards way saying to us, for Jesus to claim to be God, or for Jesus to, to say that he retains the same position and status as God, he is not taking anything really that would be rightfully not his because he is God. That's what Paul's saying. So he wasn't robbing God to say, I'm God, or to, to say, you know, in a sense, I have the same status and divine nature and deity as God the Father. Paul said, no, he's not taking anything that rightfully doesn't belong to him because it does belong to him. He is God. He is completely equal with God in all divine nature and attributes and privileges and position. Jesus was and Jesus is God. And in the Bible, we see many references to Jesus' deity and divinity. For example, Jesus himself, if you read the Gospels, you find very clearly multiple occasions where he clearly declared with his own words radically that he was God. Remember, this is what irritated the religious leaders so much about Jesus. It, it, to them, it was blasphemy. It was honestly the thing that caused them, really, in a sense, to ultimately be crucified, that he claimed to be God. People say, oh, Jesus didn't really claim to be God. Read your Bible, man. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. That's a pretty radical claim. That is either a lunatic or that is the Lord. There's really only one or two options. You can't fiddle-faddle with who Jesus is. He's either a raving lunatic saying, I'm God, 
or he truly is the Lord of all creation. And that's why he would so emphatically declare that. Remember John 14, Jesus would say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. That's what he's saying. Remember, he said, Philip, just show us the Father. That will be enough for us. He's saying, show us God. Jesus said, Philip, don't you realize I've been with you so long? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Why? He said, because I'm God. I'm just God in human form right among you right now. We read in the Gospels, chapter 5, verse 18, John 5, 18, it says this, Therefore the Jews all the more sought to kill him, because he not only broke their Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus clearly claimed that he was God, claimed that he was equal with God, because he was. The New Testament, when you read the letters and the epistles, also declare Jesus as God and teach his total equality with God the Father. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Colossians 2, verse 9 says, For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Look, let us always remember Jesus did not become God. Jesus has always been God. Very big difference. And there are pseudo-Christian cults that in a slight but very drastic way misconstrue the idea of who Jesus is. Jesus did not become God. Jesus has been God forever and ever and ever. He only became man for a set purpose of revelation and redemption and in so doing, he never ceased to be God in the process. We must retain, you say, why do you harp on this? Because we must retain the doctrinal truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. Again, if I can, can illustrate, and certainly if you're a, you're a contractor or a building person, you, you know, they have in structures in your house, in buildings, what are called load-bearing walls. And you can't remove a load-bearing wall. Because that load-bearing wall is what supports and upholds everything else. And if you remove a load-bearing wall in a home or a, or a building, uh, everything else will collapse. Well, listen, in Christianity, the deity of Christ is sort of like a load-bearing wall. In Christianity, if you remove the deity of Christ, everything else collapses. Everything collapses. Because his deity and the doctrinal truth that he is God is one of the main things our faith is upheld by and depends upon. So here's Jesus. Paul says, being God. In the highest place, the exalted, Jesus is being worshipped around the throne of God. He's creator. He's being adored for who he is. Yet verse 7 says, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So if verse 6 clearly communicates the deity of Christ, verse 7 then turns right around and proclaims and declares the humanity of Jesus Christ. That is that God actually became a man. We throw around the big term uh, in Christianity, the doctrinal term, the incarnation, which basically says God became a man. I don't know why we ever created big words. You know, but apparently it wasn't people like me who were coming. God became a man. That's what the incarnation means. God became a man. The reason was to directly connect with mankind on their level. To come and to reconcile man back to God 
as well as to to rescue man out of his sinful condition. So verse 7 here is basically referring to how Jesus, as God, added humanity to his deity. He added humanity, something he never had before. That's what the incarnation was, as Jesus came, born of a virgin, entered into our world, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial, substitutional death so that he could be completely in touch with divinity and completely in touch with humanity. Jesus, retaining his deity, added humanity to himself. He was God, but it says he made himself of no reputation And it says, coming in the likeness of man. Now, this is the great kenosis passage. The language literally indicates in the Greek, he emptied himself. That he emptied himself in coming to the earth. He gave up his glorified status as an exalted king and the privileges of heaven. He set aside for a time the prerogatives and entitlements of his heavenly position and throne. The Greek, again, he emptied himself, and this is where the great debate becomes of, okay, wait a minute, he emptied himself. What did Jesus empty himself of? And please hear me, Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. Jesus did not empty himself and set aside his divinity when he came to earth. First of all, he's God. And the Bible I read says God changes not. Jesus being God, it's literally impossible for him to change. Jesus could not become less than what he was even when he came to earth. He couldn't become less than what he was. His descending, he did not empty himself of his deity. He just gave up some of the privileges and prerogatives of his divinity. Big difference. He emptied himself. He let go of some of the privileges and prerogatives of deity. All the divine entitlements he possessed as he dwelt in heaven forever and ever. The benefits of being in glory and around the throne of God. He set those things aside for a brief time to live as man on the earth. And he emptied himself, the Bible tells us, to let go of those glorious perks, if you would, of his heavenly reputation as king of kings so that he might come to earth as a man and choose he chose to live in submission to God the Father to live as a man in complete dependence upon his Father in heaven in his humanity and did only what the Father told him and said only what the Father said to him I think John 17 Jesus' prayer in John 17 kind of reveals the idea here listen to Jesus' words John 17 verse 4 and 5 Jesus says Father I have glorified you on the earth I finished the work which you've given me to do and now O Father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was again Jesus did not relinquish his deity He retaining his deity just added humanity to himself as he came among us. Again, this is the great doctrinal truth that's so amazing and miraculous about Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ dwelt with two natures on earth. He was fully God and fully man simultaneously in this amazing and marvelous plan whereby God dwelt among us in flesh and Jesus, both his humanity and divinity, we see them, if you study the Gospels, you see his simultaneously having humanity and still possessing his deity in operation when you study the Gospels. Let me give you one quick example. Remember when Jesus got in the boat with the disciples and they sought to cross the Sea of Galilee. And it says what? That Jesus, being exhausted, did what? 
he fell asleep. I can't think of a more clear picture of humanity than that, being so dog-tired that out sailing on the boat, he just falls fast asleep because he is so physically exhausted. He just falls out and falls asleep. That's Jesus' humanity. In the same moment, then remember a storm kicked up and the disciples woke up and said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Save us. And Jesus wakes up and he says, Be still. And an incredible storm just ceases. The waves stop, the wind go away, and creation obeys his word. I can't think of a clearer picture of deity and divinity. Falling asleep, that shows you as humanity. Getting up and telling creation to just cease and be quiet and it obeys you, that's a demonstration of his divinity. So again, we see in the Bible the humanity of Christ and yet exercising his deity. Jesus simply came in the likeness of man, as the text tells us, so that he could connect with mankind. Again, if I can illustrate, and it's a faint illustration, but as a human being, if you had a little ant hill, you know those ants build those little sand hill volcano things out in front of your house, and you're ready to take your, uh, you know, power washer and wash off your patio area there, and you have compassion for the little ants and they're doing their thing there. Hey, oh, I feel bad for them. Just tremendous devastation and judgment's about to come. <laughs> what do I do? Move ants. No, that's not. But if you could become an ant literally become an ant and go down into their realm and communicate to them in a way they could understand and speak to them of the impending judgment, that would work, right? Well, in essence, Jesus did that. Jesus descended. He became a man to communicate to man, to speak to man, to, to rescue us. Ultimately, he became like us. He revealed God to us. Hebrews 1 says he's the express image of God and he rescued us. Hebrews 2 says, and as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself shared in the same. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a, ma a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation or payment, the idea is, for the sins of people. So Jesus became a man in order to reconcile man to God so that he could be in touch with humanity and deity simultaneously bridging the perfect gap. He had to become a man to suffer properly for the sins of mankind. That's why, again, as I mentioned last week in our more in-depth look at uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 8 there, First uh, Timothy 2, that Jesus, it says the Bible tells us there's one God and one mediator between God and man, and it's not a priest. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the Bible says, and that's the man Christ Jesus. The God-man. The one in touch with divinity and humanity simultaneously says, look, you want to come to God, you don't need a person. You need me. You just come to me because I died for your sins on the cross. No church did that. No person did that. Jesus says, I'm the one mediator. Interesting, the man Christ Jesus. It's because of who he is and what he did. Now, it's amazing enough he took on human form, but the verse also tells us that he as well, verse 7 it says, took the form of a bondservant, which further describes the emptying of Jesus of himself. He who was worshipped, consider it, he who was worshipped and served by all the angels and all creation, he was worshipped and served by everything, came and lived as the greatest servant of all among humanity that he himself created. 
Again, John 13 is probably the clearest picture of that. Jesus, in humble servanthood, rises from dinner. The greatest of all takes the lowest form of service and washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and then ultimately to give my life as a ransom for many. So verse 8 then goes on saying, and being found in appearance as a man, we looked at this in depth last week, Verse 8, we took an in-depth study, and I encourage you to listen to the message if you want an in-depth lesson on verse 8. Jesus found an appearance as a man, again, saying God appeared as man in Jesus, that we found God appearing as man. And then verse 8 speaks of what Jesus did while living among us as man. And again, before communion, we kind of took an in-depth look, and we talked about three specific things that Jesus did, we can see from this verse, as a man. We talked about, first of all, that Jesus lowered himself. It says, as a man, he humbled himself, which means he intentionally chose, despite his exalted status, he intentionally chose to make himself lower, to stoop down, to give up superior rank, and instead to take a lower position, like a king leaving his throne and leaving the palace and going and becoming maybe like a peasant, a farmer, a blacksmith, again, leaving his position, choosing consciously to humble himself. And considering the fact of who Jesus was as king of kings, we said it's quite an understatement to just say he humbled himself. That's quite an understatement. And again, we took note of how it does not say Jesus was humbled. It's one thing to be humbled. I've been humbled way more times than I'd like to have been. It's one thing when someone or something happens that humbles you. But it says Jesus humbled himself. That is, he intentionally chose to lower himself. He intentionally chose to let go of his importance and superiority and rank and position. And he intentionally stooped down to a lower position for love's sake for you and I. And we talked about the many ways that Jesus humbled himself and the reason being that Jesus humbled himself to connect with you and I personally. That's why he did it. He humbled himself so that he could be approachable and so that we would be able to connect with him on a personal level. Secondly, we saw from verse 8 that Jesus, we said, submitted himself. It says in the verse that he also became obedient to the point of death. That is, the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of his Father in heaven was so perfect and complete, it was carried out all the way to the extent of death itself. Again, the Gospels reveal how Jesus had total obedience to the Father's will in all things. The New Testament, we talked about, teaches in multiple places how Jesus lived a sinless life. As a man, he never faltered. He never erred in thought, in word, in deed. He lived sinlessly perfectly was tempted in all points like we are as men and women as human beings but it says Jesus however committed no sin in other words he lived what was necessary to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's holy law he lived the perfect sinless life that I can't live he lived the perfect sinless life that you will never live and could never live to allow us to be then acceptable to God he lived the life that we can't. He did it for us. And then if that weren't enough, he said, and I'll tell you what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to exchange for you my righteousness and perfection so that you can get into heaven. And I'll take all your sin and guilt and wickedness and, and, and carnality upon myself. And I'll go take the punishment for it all so that we can switch places. And so that you as a guilty sinner can have access to heaven. Jesus carried out obedience to the will of God 
in sinless perfection all to the point it says to the extent to the end of death itself that is he surrendered to the death experience he had power over death but he submitted to the experience of death to overcome sin's penalty and power and because of what Jesus has accomplished now by faith alone God satisfied and we can be acceptable in the sight of God and we talked about that in depth last week that by faith alone we're trusting in the finished perfected work of Jesus Christ and despite all our imperfections by grace and through faith alone we can enjoy the benefits of access to God Romans 5 says by one man's disobedience Adam's many were made sinners by one man's obedience many will be made righteous so Jesus lowered himself he submitted himself in obedience and as well verse 8 teaches us we saw that he sacrificed himself not only the experience death but we saw the death even the death of the cross which is the most shameful disgraceful death a human being could experience it was reserved for the most vile of criminal criminals it was the electric chair of the ancient culture it was the most abominable disgraceful shameful form of public execution and Jesus didn't just die he died even the death of the cross. The Holy Spirit again wants us to take notice not just that Jesus died, but how Jesus died. Because it speaks volumes of how he was willing to die. He didn't just come to suffer for our sin and take the punishment for our sin through shedding his blood to make payment so that we could go free and be forgiven. But he says, listen, don't miss the fact he took even the death of the cross. The most shameful death possible personally embracing disgrace and shame to the fullest because there's no extent Jesus would not go to to rescue your soul. And he wanted you to know the depths of his love and his willingness to do whatever it took. He embraced shame and disgrace so that no matter how disgraceful you are, no matter how despicable you feel, Jesus says, that doesn't shock me. I already took so much disgrace and shame upon myself your filthy, shameful, disgraceful conduct or who you are, you may be disgraced of yourself, but I've taken way more disgrace upon myself in what I did in embracing the cross. So come to me just like you are. And how amazing to consider that sacrifice that Jesus in heaven descends from where he is, becomes a man, humbles himself, goes down, lives obediently on the earth, lives as a servant to those who should be worshiping and serving him and ultimately dies a death that is the most disgraceful, despicable form of human death possible, descending to the absolute lowest possible place. And that's why verse 9 then says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verse 9 through 11 now deal with the exaltation of Jesus. 6 down through verse 8 deal with the descent of Jesus Christ and how he humbled himself. And then verse 9 through 11 describes to us how Jesus has now been exalted. He was raised up, not just from the dead, but to an exalted position in heaven. Let's consider a few things here. First of all, take note from verse 9. Who exalted Jesus? It says Jesus was exalted, but who exalted Jesus? Well, notice 
it says in our text this morning that Jesus humbled himself, but it does not say that he exalted himself. It does not say Jesus lifted himself up. And that's very important. Jesus was exalted by God the Father. Verse 9 answers the question, God has highly exalted him. God the Father was so pleased with the mindset and the methodology and the lifestyle of his son Jesus Christ and because of Jesus' humility and because of his obedience and because of his sacrifice and emptying of himself verse 9 says as a result therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name I want you to note the biblical progression there it's purposeful and don't miss it verse 8 those words, Jesus humbled himself. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him. Jesus humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. Jesus said himself, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And please realize, Jesus did not humble himself in, in some pseudo form of spirituality. And, and we can very easily do that. Where we almost, it's almost like a hoop we jump through. Okay, what do I got to do? And people will falsely, in a pseudo spiritual way, okay, I'll just humble myself, I'll do whatever. And it's not real, it's not genuine. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus was exalted because of the simple fact that he sincerely, genuinely humbled himself. He didn't do it like some hoop to jump through. Well, I'll humble myself because then I know I'll get exalted. If I humble myself, then I'll get my position back. If I act humble, then I'll get lifted up again. No, that, and human beings do that. That's how weird we are. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Heart's, my heart's so messed up, it deceives me. It deceives it's, it's deceitful even more than it's wicked. And Jesus didn't falsely humble himself so that he could get exalted. It's the fact that he genuinely did humble himself that the father saw that and he was so pleased he was so blessed that the natural response is when the father saw him humble himself God was so pleased that God lifted him up that the father exalted him why? because it's a divine principle whereby God operates as I said in the beginning of the study God honors humility we read in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5 God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble he resists the proud. I don't want God resisting me. Do you? I, I, it's hard enough when people resist me. I don't want God resisting my life. But God says, as long as you're proud, I will actively resist in your life. I will bring resistance into your life. Have you been experiencing some resistance that you wonder where it's coming from? I don't know. God resists the proud, but he gives grace. That is, he opens his hand. Instead of going like this, he then opens his hand when humility comes into our life. Because Jesus humbled himself, it says God exalted him to the highest place. I love the language. It says God highly exalted him. Would have been enough if Paul just said God exalted him. But Paul said, no, that's not, that's not enough. God highly exalted him. When you look at the language in the original, it indicates that Paul was saying to be exalted above all. It could almost be translated God super exalted him. You know, Paul was excited. He humbled himself and God's, God just didn't exalt him. He super exalted him. And how did God do that? Well, he raised him from the dead and then Jesus ascended into heaven. But if that were not enough, he was exalted way higher to where his honor was increased even more. 
Put in your notes or listen to Ephesians 1, verse 20 to 22. Let me read it. It says, God the Father, regarding Jesus, the Father has raised him from the dead, seated him in his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So the exaltation of Jesus, it's almost as if he has been given further honor and further exaltation than he already had because of the incredible humility that he demonstrated that so blessed and honored the Father's heart. Jesus, it says, has been seated at that position of the right hand of God, the most superior place upon a throne. He's been appointed, it says, as head of the church. He's been given as the head of the church, the one who rules over the church. Again, no man is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And it says that God has now put all things under his feet, indicating, again, he's the Lord and ruler of creation. And again, fascinating the way the whole concept works. Jesus gave up, he made himself of no reputation, he gave up his glorified reputation and status and as a result of that, giving up his reputation, God, it says, has now given him the name which is above every name. Again, I, I love the way God works. Got to hold on to stuff. Got to keep your reputation, man. Your reputation. People got to know you're important. As Jesus gave up his reputation. He gave up his status. I don't know. He just he let go of it. He emptied himself of it. And God gave him, it says, in return, the name which is above every name. God gave him the highest recognition and supremacy because he didn't grasp and go after it himself. Again, and the name in the Bible speaks of the representation of a person and their authority, their character and who they are. And the name above every name has been given to Jesus. That's why we read in Acts 4 verse 12 regarding Jesus, nor is there salvation found in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's salvation in the name of Jesus, power in the name of Jesus because who he is. So we see there who exalted Jesus. Take notice also why he was exalted, or we could say what is our response or what should our response be to Jesus' exaltation. Well, that's a verse 10 11 speak about. It says he's been exalted so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So given the high position of exaltation that the Father has given to Jesus as a result of who he is, the Holy Spirit prompts Paul to say, you know what, that should elicit a response from us. He's been exalted and given the name that's above every name so that it should elicit a response from all creation. That's why he says in verse 10 there, of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth. It's just a statement to talk about the totality of creation. Whether we're still living on the earth, whether we're already in heaven with the Lord, whether those below the earth in hell's condemnation or, or the demons below reserved for the days of judgment. He says, look, the totality of all creation, all things should be in submission to and give acknowledgement of the supremacy of the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's design and intention 
is that all creation, all people should worship Jesus and serve Jesus for who he is as the Lord. Now, please understand this passage and text does not imply or teach universal salvation of all people and all creation. What this is speaking of is universal submission to the authority and rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some that take this and twist and tweak it in a wrong way out of context to indicate that eventually everything, everyone, all things, you'll just everyone will just all always get saved. Well, well that's about the most foolish, eternally damning doctrine that you could tell anyone. It takes away human responsibility and accountability. It's not teaching universal salvation. Salvation's available to all men, but the Bible does not teach that all men will be saved. It's not universal salvation. It's universal submission to the supremacy of Jesus. That submission and acknowledgement of Jesus as the Lord will ultimately happen in every person, in every creature and creation. Again, this isn't a reference to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23, where the Lord beckons, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself, the Lord has gone out, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. Listen to what it says, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess or take an oath. See, the reality is ultimately at some point in time and eternity, every creature will definitely will bow the knee to Jesus. Every creature, every person will at one point bow the knee to Jesus' authority and confess that he is the Lord. It is just a matter of when. And please hear me in this. When that takes place also will determine the outcome of that bowing and surrender and acknowledging with the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, the Bible exhorts us and teaches us because of what Jesus has done and made available. The Bible tells us continuously that we should bow the knee and surrender to Jesus and confess him as Lord now, right now. Because of what he's done, he's made available that right now we should do it. Romans 10, 9 assures us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And see, right now, this morning, while there's still breath in your lungs and your last breath is not departed, the Bible says right now, all you got to do is believe. And if you confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And see, if we bow the knee to Jesus and surrender now and confess him as Lord, we do such unto our salvation. But if a person chooses to refuse, I'm not bowing the knee to Jesus. Nobody's being in control of my life. I'm in control of my life. I'm not going to confess these things. And if a person chooses to not bow the knee to Jesus, they will not escape ultimately doing that. There will come a time still one day where that same person who may have rejected him on earth, listen, if you reject him now, you will still one day bow the knee to Jesus. And you will still confess that he is the Lord. Only you will do such to your own damnation. Because you will do such in eternal regret saying, you are the Lord and I was wrong. What you said was right and I in pride 
and arrogance rejected you, and you will do such what could have been to your salvation to your own damnation. So one day it will take place, and notice it's all intended, it says, to bring glory to God. It is all intended to bring glory to God. Now, as I said at the beginning, remember, the primary purpose of this passage is not intended per se to be doctrinal. It's really intended to be practical. You say you talked a lot about doctrine. Why I told you that, but it's really intended to be practical. Remember verse 5 again? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Take the outlook and attitude of Jesus. He's saying, look, if Jesus could give up all that he gave up and humble himself and be obedient and become a servant in humility and trust his future to God the Father, why can't we, he's saying, we're way less superior and way less important. And again, if Jesus could esteem every person higher than himself and consider not just himself but the interests of others and take the form of a servant, the Bible is saying to us, listen, shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we take the outlook and mindset of Jesus? We should seek to become like humble servants. If Jesus, our example, would do that, we should seek to become humble servants. Again, Galatians 5 says that through love, serve one another. And if Jesus, who is so extremely important, so superior above all, didn't demand his superiority be respected and didn't demand you know, that he be honored, instead he emptied himself, he set aside his reputation, he lowered himself, shouldn't we take the same outlook and do the same, Paul's saying? have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Again, often, many a times as human beings, we have a really arrogant sense of self-entitlement. And strangely and perversely, we consider ourselves a lot more important than what we really are. And I find that there's this natural tendency, and it's almost what we're taught in our culture, you know, we deserve our rights, and we are prone to think that we have to exalt ourselves. You gotta exalt yourself. You wanna get ahead, man, you gotta get yourself noticed. Got to get yourself out there, show your stuff, toot your horn, brag about yourself, sell yourself. That's what our world teaches us. I understand that. And there's this propensity to think we have to obtain a reputation to become known, to get ourselves recognized, to make sure people are aware and that we gain our reputation as important or get our reputation. I'm pretty talented or I'm pretty special. And the Bible is saying, you know what? It's the exact opposite from God's perspective. The Bible says, you know what? God works in the reverse. He's saying, you know what? Trust God with your future. Humble yourself. You got a reputation? Great. But, but you, know, you don't have to sell your reputation. Just try humbling yourself and trust God with your future. Let God lift you up in the proper way and at the proper time. Again, Jesus humbled himself. And what did we read? And God exalted him. Listen again to the words of James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Want to be lifted up? Nothing wrong with that. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, the Bible says. 1 Peter 5.6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Lord, why aren't you exalting me? Lord, why aren't you using me? Lord, why aren't you giving me more status, more opportunity? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Sometimes the reason I think that God, I want to exalt you, I want to bless you, I want to honor you, I want to use you, but I can't exalt you because 
you haven't humbled yourself the way that I want you to yet. You're still striving and promoting and pushing and trying to gain a reputation. Let go of it all. And let me lift you up. I, let me be able to lift you up so that you're ready and you're responsive and you're right in the time that I do it. And then I can exalt you because I'm the one that wants to exalt you. That you have a humble heart to be able to retain that. Again, Jesus did everything that he did, obeying God's will, humbling himself, letting go of what he did, descending, for what reason really? To make you and I in right relationship with God. Now last me, let me leave you with this this morning. Jesus was the one completely innocent. We were the ones completely guilty as sinners. But Jesus did not stubbornly say, you know what, you're the one that's guilty. I'm not humbling myself, you're the guilty one. He didn't say, look, I'm not coming down and sacrificing and emptying myself. You're the one that's wrong. You should do it. I bring this up again. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Because typically when there's tension in human relationships or situations, we want to hold our ground and demand the other person sacrifice. And typically when there's tension in a relationship, we want to stubbornly refuse. I'm not doing the right thing. I'm not going to. You do the right thing. You're the one that's wrong. And there's this tendency in us by nature that rather than bring resolution and say, you know what, I'll humble myself, I'll do the right thing, I'll obey God, I'll lower myself for the sake of reconciliation or healing of relationships or whatever. Uh, Again, humility, hear me, humility will always restore relationships. That's what Jesus told us. Jesus' humility restored relationship. Humility will always restore relationships. The question is, will you sacrifice? You know, a dear sister in the Lord Uh, who actually the Bible study of Calvary Chapel of York began in her home back in 1999 where we pastored prior to coming here. Very early on in my getting to to know her, she made a statement that has stuck with me forever. We were talking about relationships and, and marriage and so forth and particularly it applies so often to marriage. She said, Tony, listen, here's what I've learned. And she's an older sister in the Lord. She said, somebody always has to be willing to eat the first piece of humble pie and she said once somebody eats the first piece of humble pie it's amazing how everybody else will partake of the same thing Father we thank you for your word for how it speaks to us how Lord it stirs in our hearts a desire to want to obey you and respond to you and Lord Jesus we ask that you would help us by your spirit's grace to live in a way that's responsive to the truths of your word. That, Lord, as we look at Jesus as this great example, Lord, would you help us to have the same mind as Christ Jesus? It's not natural, Lord, but supernaturally help us to humble ourselves, to let go, Lord, to take the pathway that he did in our own lives for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.